Welcome to Beer Massive, a collection of good beer-centric conversation, interviews, editorials, reviews, and more from a collective of centrally like-minded yet individually opinionated good beer fanatics. From podcasts born in the present, or from our massive library of brewer interviews from years past, we hope you enjoy what you hear. If you do enjoy what you're here, please subscribe. Feel free to reach out to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram on tap, at Massive Beers, or email us individually at massivebeers at gmail.com. How you doing, guys? This is what we call a second take. Sometimes you hit record, and sometimes your recorder does not want to do the things you'd like it to do. Um, and what you do is either power through it and start again, or you're just going to call it a day. But we're going to power through it. And uh, we're going to sit down and drink some beers and talk about stuff we've already talked about, which might come off awesome or might not, but we'll see otherwise. Um, today we're back into actually my old stomping grounds down in, uh, is this, what is this, East Central New Jersey? I don't even know where we typically call this. I feel area. like that's an argument that I always lose at. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, northern. The shore. Yeah. Well, shore is probably shore. the best guesstimate. <laughs> we're down on the shore. We're in Lakewood, New Jersey, and we're talking to, for the second time, uh, Jason Goldstein of Icarus Brewing. What's going on, brother? How you doing? Yeah, it's kind of weird to do it a second time, right? It kind of feels a little weird. I mean, practice makes perfect. There you go. So this time, everything's going to be absolutely perfect. But we're going to sit down with Icarus. We're going to talk uh, about some of the beers that Jason makes here, go over his past exploits, and uh, pretty much what was uh, the reason why Icarus exists down here in Jersey for the first place. So first things first, what's going on? You just finished a brew, sitting down. You asked me for a beer. I get a Pilsner. It looks like you're chugging on some some bigness. Yeah, no, this is a, a brand new uh big imperial porter uh, we had a bunch of adjuncted versions on tap this weekend and uh we threw a lot of into barrels as well it's a huge uh, imperial lactose porter what's the name of it so we're calling this one big dave uh much to dave's chagrin um it was a off-the-cuff name it was a imperial version of another porter that we did that was his recipe as a base beer so i figure you know big dave i assume big dave is a guy that Works here, comes here a lot, friend of yours? Uh, assistant brewer, works in the tap room, um, so all the above. Okay. How many people do you actually have here, uh, brew side and uh, front of the room side? So brew side, there's probably now four of us total. Um, another two in deliveries, another one salesperson, and then tap room, ten or so. Oh, geez, dude, I didn't know it was that big. Yeah, I mean, we're open uh, five days a week. Uh, Saturdays are long days, a lot of shifts. Um so it's a growing staff. What, what? How many people were here when you opened day one? Maybe three of us total. Same people still here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, when you decided to open, like, uh, was it a an effort with a bunch of other people? Was it your lone, um, like, lone idea? I'm sure other people helped you along the way, mm-hmm. but did you have other people helping you? The brew portion of things in the opening, of the business business side of things, or did you have your whole plan figured out and do it from? from scratch yourself so a lot of it was definitely my plan um worked on that for a long time you know every time as long as i've been working at breweries it's sort of a business plan i've always been writing Mm -hmm. learning from everyone else's mistakes learning from you know what they're doing well and just growing from there however uh you know like all things it grew over time and people joined in along the way and we really used everyone's expertise to really more craft it rather than just being a general idea okay um, and then we already talked about it earlier. You started, uh, originally you went out to Ohio State University and went to school for... Food science. Food science. Specializing in fermentation. 
do they cover do they cover beer specifically there in that program or is yeah it- so it was sort of a uh, a sub major that I created pretty much myself uh, now it's an actual major that was a fun thing about my program there uh, you were allowed to take any mixture of classes and if you could argue that hey this is as difficult as any other degree they would accept it as a new degree really so I created fermentation by adding a bunch of you know biochem ochem nutrition uh Pretty much anything that involved the word fermentation in the course guideline, I somehow threw into the course. Now, I know there is, I've, I've heard a couple of people speak to this, but there's there's strictly all fully fermented diets, like everything that people consume, whether it be, you know, their food to drink and whatnot, they just do fermented mm-hmm. foods. Was it born from that? Is that something that you did or was it just more just uh, something that you were just interested in? I mean, definitely something I'm just interested in. I mean... Anytime you're fermenting something, you're making uh, the nutrients a little bit more bioavailable. I'm not saying that the nutrients in beer are more bioavailable, but I mean, I'm not going to sit all day just chewing on barley. What do you mean bioavailable? So uh, typically when you ferment things, whether it be the protein inside of the vitamin complexes, it's a lot more easily digestible by the human body. So that's why uh, people drink kombucha, things like that, because it's for uh, Greek yogurt. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of active bacteria, a lot of vitamins that are just easily digestible by your body so it's basically like almost like the opposite of the raw diet yeah i would imagine to where mm-hmm. it's like you know that you're making your body basically do all the work in order to break down into the raw materials that you're consuming whereas this you're kind of i don't know kickstarting a little bit getting it along the way where it's actually at a point where it's starting to be well fermented the same way your body would process stuff inside of itself and just kind of conjoin together and just become become one is that, is that like poetic or something or cheesy i'm not sure which one i mean that, that should have been the description of fermentation from the start yeah, yeah. Well, well there you go well I, I'm, you know sometimes you don't know things you gotta ask questions that's the whole point of this thing i guess well that and just to be interesting people um so you decide from there you uh you were saying earlier that you actually did an internship out in ohio from go ahead yeah so uh i, I took an internship at elevator brewing in columbus and when I say I worked at a brewery, I mean I was helping on the bottling line. I was sweeping up broken glasses, pretty much is always a result of bottling lines, which I'm so happy that it's all canning these days. <laughs> uh, I'll deal with, you know, crushed aluminum before broken glass any day. And this is around, like, what, 2010, 2011? Uh, that was 2009 uh, to 2010. So was it, like, an old-school traditional, like, brew pub, or was it, like, a production facility brewery? Sort of both. So uh, obviously New Jersey has the weirdest laws known to man. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ohio, you are allowed to have a production facility and a separate restaurant, so a brew pub separate from your brewery. So I worked on the production end, but they did also have a restaurant separate. Okay. Um, which is kind of like a, how a lot of beer got started back in the day. I mean, you still see a little bit of brew pub stuff here in New Jersey, but like you said, the laws are kind of weird, so they're kind of grandfathered in. But if once you branch out, whether it be from Pennsylvania on, you see a lot of places that do that, that have small breweries or larger breweries attached to, like, brew pubs and stuff like that. Um, from there, you decide to head off to England? You- yeah, so uh, after I graduated college, I ended up moving out to England, lived on the uh, Scottish border, middle of nowhere, northern England. Uh, apologies to anyone who's from there for a lot of reasons. <laughs> uh, I studied at, it was through the University of Sunderland, it was called Brew Lab. I studied under the former brewmaster for Heineken for Newcastle, so mm-hmm. that's where the macro end, but they were extremely intelligent people. Uh, really learned a lot through them. 
because through that program, I was in classes 40 hours a week, as well as working in breweries 40 hours a week. It was all different breweries uh, all over, you know, Sunderland, Newcastle, Durham, pretty much everywhere in that northern England area. Uh, some of these were super modern breweries, uh, you know, working on the former pilot system for Newcastle, which had equipment that I could only dream of, mm -hmm. to working on breweries that predated World War II, where there were pieces of the equipment that were still missing. <laughs> um, there were, you know, pieces of the steel were stolen for the war effort. Things that you would see in every other brewery in the world, but because they went without it, they decided to keep going without it, you know. So it's real interesting to learn on those systems as well. And in, in back then it wasn't like, you know, nowadays in the United States and everywhere else for that matter. You want a brewing system, you open a catalog or you go on the Internet and you look up the, you know, half dozen, two dozen, um, you know, makers of equipment and you pick what you want. Back then they didn't have that. They constructed themselves or they, you know what I mean, finagled whatever they could to make it work. So, you know, a lot of today's like... Uh, I would imagine a lot of today's machinery and the stuff that we use in, a, in the brew houses are it's like cherry pick the best of the best the pieces from those original kind of brew houses and then kind of put together to where you're working on something that's kind of, for lack of a better word, better word, jerry rigged. What kind of it, what kind of advantage do you think that gives you when you go into like your brew house here? It is a bit more modern. So once you learn to uh, brew on, you know, the complete like ragtag jerry rigged. Uh, brew houses you really learn to love all the modern amenities of a new brew system you know I worked on plenty of you know old dairy fermenters worked on plenty of old mash tons that I'd have to physically go inside at the end scoop all the grain out you know I'd be in a you know knee-high boots I'd be in you know fishing waders like everything just scooping hot grain over my shoulders so we can get the next batch going mm -hmm. uh, and then you go home just smelling a mesh even more than usual <laughs> uh, so when you work on a modern system you know with pumps rakes things like that you learn to love it and you were talking about like uh, learning from um, you know one of the head brew masters from Newcastle along with the guys from Heineken and you kind of um, went into that kind of talking about you know the macro end of things do you think a lot of brewers or head brewers of large breweries like that get a bad rap? Because you probably learned a lot of valuable things from uh, from brewers that had to deal with such large capacity like that. Like those people know how to make good beer. It's not like they're like, oh, they're just over there just doing the same thing over and over again. They're usually, especially you know, ten years ago, which I assume ten years prior is when they're close to being let go, so they're still making the beer the way that it mm -hmm. used to be made in Newcastle. They probably have made every beer style known to man, so they have a ton of information. It seems like a lot of people kind of go, whatever, he worked at Newcastle. You probably learned a ton of stuff. Yeah, as much as I can insult the uh, business practices of a lot of these macro breweries and, you know, how they treat smaller breweries, how they treat you know, employees, things like that, the actual employees themselves are the most knowledgeable in the world. You mm -hmm. know, every single year, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, Heineken are hiring the best and the brightest. They're having the best trained brewmasters in the world make you know macro pilsners that really taste like nothing but that's their intention yeah uh you know kind of i do hate them for how they uh rob breweries of shelf space how they buy out breweries from under the brewers things like that or like in the case of heineken newcastle when they go in and they buy the brewery in newcastle and then immediately shut it down laying yeah. off every single one of those employees because that was just a business move for them yeah uh, i can hate on them for that but these guys or as knowledgeable as physically possible. You know, they work their entire lives, you know, studying college, uh, you know, work from day one to the day they retired in nothing but brewing. 
Yeah, and, and, and to diminish that, like, like you said, you kind of say it with a little hesitance, not because you believe that, but you feel like maybe if you say you learned from somebody from Newcastle, people would look at that as a negative. I view it as a positive myself, and I think a lot of people, brewers in the industry and stuff like that, view that too. Um, so you take your information, you've gleaned from your, your, your what sounds like your semi-self-created fermentation program mm-hmm. over at Ohio State to England and back to the United States. So you get back here what year? you get back to the United States? Uh, by 2012. So 2012, Icarus Brewing opens the dead beginning of 2017, January 2017, yeah. correct? Take us through those years. Um, like, what? where did you go, and how did that shape you up until you opened up Icarus? So as soon as I moved back, I ended up uh, taking a job at Rendon Brewing, which is in Tom's River, doing uh, very traditional English-Irish styles, which is obviously, you know, where my specialty at that point was. Uh, in all reality, I learned a lot about a startup of a brewery because I was, you know, the first brewer there uh, when we we're still setting up all the equipment. Learned uh, learned the right things to do, the wrong things to do. Uh, really, you know, got my feet in the head brewing position at that job. You know, after that, uh, I ended up leaving uh, Rendon to move back to New York, uh, became the head brewer at Van Brunn Stillhouse, which is in Red Hook, which is a complete turnaround from what I was doing before. You know, I was still a brewer, but really I wasn't making beer anymore. I was making sort of a distiller's mash. Mm-hmm. So brewing the pre-distillate, as well as, you know, getting my toes in the water of distilling. Uh, just completely learning that on the job, uh, reading a textbook a week while just learning from people who knew a hell of a lot more than I did. And then from there, you, um, you're, you decide to open Icarus while you're up there. Yeah. Throughout so, all this, I was writing my business plan, uh, getting all that going. So, uh, so obviously, when you're down here in Tom's River, because Icarus isn't too far from Tom's River, mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, you, there's something down here that brought you back here to open up a place. Was it more of a matter of you saw that Jersey had growth? Did you are you a sadomasochist, knowing Jersey laws, and you decided to come back down here and didn't have to deal with that? Like, what brought you back here to the to this area? Because Lakewood's, you know, what 15, 10, 15 minutes away from Tom's River, yeah. so you're not too far away. I, I mean, I think I just fell in love with like the general Ocean County area. Uh, really like just. I grew up by the water. I'm still by the water down here. It's a little bit simpler way of life down here than back in New York. A little bit slower. You don't need to have that hustle and bustle. Honestly, I can say I have a 10, 15 minute commute now. Uh, <laughs> I don't miss the commute from Queens to Red Hook every day. Really? You don't? Uh, something about <laughs> the uh, 20 minute drive to work at 4 a.m. and the three hour drive home in the afternoon. No. Yeah. yeah, that uh, you, you fall out of love with your own city pretty fast <laughs> like that. Um, how'd you find a spot? We're kind of in a warehouse district, pretty mm-hmm. s- pretty common with a lot of breweries nowadays. Was it just a matter of just finding a spot of a place that you needed to, to fill, or was it more logistics? Like, okay, we're close to on and off the turnpike. We're you know we're easy on and off. There's some breweries semi-local to here. Was it everything in play, or is it just let's find a place and then just go with it and just make our name? I mean, I th- I I'd spent about a half a year looking for locations. Uh, tried in a lot of towns around here until I really. Once I saw all the advantages of opening, you know, in the industrial park here in Lakewood, it was just sort of my immediate goal. You know, mm-hmm. I saw that, you know, the Lakewood Blue Claws are a few blocks away. Uh, the parkway entrance and exits a few blocks away. So accessible to pretty much the entire eastern half of the state, which, you know, is extremely helpful. As well as we're off the beaten path, so we don't have to deal with downtown traffic, parking issues. Uh, the township generally likes us. So, yeah, I was going to ask that. Like, how has Lakewood uh, accepted you guys? Oh, they love us. Yeah. Um, you know, the mayor works with us all the time. 
uh, building department, police, firefighters, like everyone loves it here more or less. It's just something very different than anything they're used to. Yeah. And we can always, you know, help them in different ways, whether it be different fundraisers here and hosting all sorts of events for them. So it's definitely a very synergistic relationship. So you open up and you have your, as you said earlier, about three employees or so. From then to what point did you realize it's accelerating faster than what you thought? Because you're talking about even 2017, you're like beer was pretty crazy then, but it just keeps exponentially getting crazier and crazier. Um, you know, a lot more people are getting into beer. A lot more people are getting more knowledgeable about beer. Was it like, okay, I have three people I have in my system. Let's keep our head. Let's hope, hopefully people come in and drink our beer too. Oh shit. I need to hire more people. And cause you're up to what? A couple dozen employees now, right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah like that growth has been, you know, almost two years. We're a month away from it being two years in the making, but it has to be faster than your business plan. No one draws a business plan that aggressive. Like, how is it every couple months you be you're like okay we're got our head above water as far as production and uh, materials and everything and then a month or two later going oh no we got to just bump it up even more and more or do you have a kind of a, a clear concise idea of the track that it's going on I know it's a very loaded question but I mean when I started noticing that my sales guy kept asking me you know I need more kegs I need more cans I need more kegs I need more cans and I was already upping production as fast as I could. When I was ordering more fermenters, filling them, you know, two days after they showed up and still couldn't keep up with production, I sort of knew that, okay, this is going a lot faster than I ever imagined. You know, when the lead times for new tanks became issues because we couldn't keep up with production till that point and we were ordering new tanks before the new ones even got here. Again, <laughs> it was sort of a sign of, okay, this is growing a lot faster than I ever imagined. What was the, besides, what was the biggest uh, kind of pitfalls in that process? Like, you can't get the beer at that point. Is it just you, you feel like you're going to have to alienate people, customers? Um, you know, whether it be retail, wholesale customers out there, you're already at max capacity. Mm -hmm. You're making as much beer as you can. Like, what what's the worst part of that? Just being at somebody else's bidding, being at the people getting you what you need and not being able to do what you want to do? Is, is it just that simple? Or is it just a matter of you just keep your head down and just do as best you can? I mean, all any of us can ever do is, you know, put our head down and do the best we can. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the problem with uh, when you can't keep up with demand, you lose that flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you suddenly start worrying about, you know, what if the grain shows up a few days late? What if we run out of kegs? You know, all these logistic issues really just amplify you don't have that flexibility of well we'll just brew a few days later because you know you're, you're starting to make promises to liquor stores like hey you always get this delivery on wednesday bars you always get this delivery on thursday and all of a sudden it's how about next wednesday and you know it, it's not something you want to do because as fast as craft beer is growing bars and liquor stores are still very hesitant to deal with small breweries with craft breweries you know they where we self-distribute everything we do uh, some places really hate working with self-distributed breweries because we can possibly, you know, not have product to give them. Mm -hmm. If you work with a, you know, a large brewery, a distributor, no matter what, okay, I don't have that beer, but we have these 17 other beers. So, you know, from 10 other breweries. So a bar never really notices when something doesn't show up. And what, what amount, because I mean, you've got a decent sized tap room here and, you, you know, you sell 
probably a decent portion of your beer out of the tap room, but I would imagine a bulk of it is through distribution. You guys push out a ton of cans. Yeah, so at this point, we're probably uh, pushing out maybe a third of our beer in our tap room, mm-hmm. with two thirds being around the state. And then, and then when you're pushing two thirds of your total beer production out, and your main delivery vehicle bursts into flames, what happens to your business model at that point? Uh, <laughs> it becomes a question of do you throw your head in the sand and you know try and deal with this later, or do you just like rush to action? No, I, I mean, mean backstory is that you guys had what was it a snowstorm last week? Uh, one of your vehicles caught fire. Your main delivery vehicle. Yeah. Correct? No, our uh, under a year old uh, delivery truck, which was loaded and on the road five days a week, uh, stuck, you know, up uh, on two eighty seven uh, in a snow drift, and uh, well, long story short, completely engulfed in flames. Lost the beer and everything, didn't you? Uh, so it was toward the end of the delivery day. Like, that's the one bright oh, okay, side there. Okay. There's maybe, like, two stops left. And, you know, luckily also because it's a delivery truck. There's a firewall between the engine and the uh, storage area. So all that was fine. Like, all our empty kegs were salvaged. Hand truck, all those nice things salvaged. The cases, gone. Uh, not, you know, they don't yeah. have stainless steel around them to keep them safe. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't a complete disaster in that aspect. It would have been a lot worse if that was a uh, you know loaded truck on the way in the morning to deliveries. Yeah. Because uh, I don't even want to start thinking about how many cases and how many kegs were in the truck at the start of the day. But that's 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 a good um, kind of conversation to have because you have all these people out there, and when they look at a brewery like yourself, okay, and and your cans are pretty readily available up by me. I'm up more um, where are we Warren County area. Um, not right where I am, but you know, if I travel 20 minutes east, I can see them. That's a pretty big distance, and I'm sure you guys touch a lot of different places on, on um, in in uh, the state of New Jersey, which a lot of people then end up thinking, well, they're you know on par with a lot of the other breweries out there, the bigger breweries in Jersey. When your car, when a delivery truck like that goes up in flames and you lose it completely. That puts a dent in your plans, whereas, like, a bigger brewery, I don't want to name a name, but one of the bigger New Jersey producers, if they lose a truck, they're just buy another truck today, yeah. today mm-hmm. and just back to business as normal. You know what I mean? And a lot of people, I don't think, see the difference between those two. They go, oh, just get another truck and be like, well, you know, when you are when you have all this equipment on order, mm-hmm. all these ingredients on order, sometimes you can't do these things. Those are the kind of pitfalls that a lot of smaller breweries uh, kind of run into and it's kind of like when you talk about the New Jersey beer laws and all the bullshits going on I think that's where a lot of people lose sight and what's happening with the smaller breweries and how you guys have to deal with that yeah I mean everyone plans for a rainy day however a uh, torrential snowstorm with uh, you know that level of loss is something I don't think anyone really plans for especially at this size yeah so obviously it was a huge hit to us I mean the amount of places that had to explain the next day hey uh, we're not going to make your delivery there the next morning attached a picture of the truck and a lot of places luckily understood it hey anything we can do just let us know yeah uh a lot of breweries you know immediately reached out to us hey if you know we're going this area tomorrow if you need like let us know we'll lend you our truck we'll do whatever anything to help plenty of stores were what do you mean you won't get the beer tomorrow (laughs) like no we have a lot bigger issues right now like we're not dropping your five cases off uh you know two hours north like i need to go to the lot and check and see if any of this is salvageable you can talk to an insurance company you can talk to all these things so it is definitely a huge hit especially you know when 
you're just growing, when you're just expanding, and you start telling places like, I know I delivered to you, you know, the last three weeks in a row, but it might be a couple weeks yeah. off. Places don't really understand that. Yeah. So, and, it's not, and it's not like with Jersey law, it's not like you can turn around and be like, okay, you can come and get it. No, you can't do that. It's yeah. illegal. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to, either you get it to them or you don't get it to them. Mm-hmm. Now, on the, on the flip side of thing, when it comes to Jersey and how beer is produced here and how it gets out into the world, you are at a slight advantage with that because since, you know, J- New Jersey has the most people per square inch and the mm-hmm. least amount of breweries per square inch pr- pretty much in the whole country, there's room for growth. If you were in a, a, a um, industry-packed place like California where, like, if you're trying to put cans on the shelves, people are just going to walk by them. Mm-hmm. When when your stuff hits the shelves, I'm sure it pretty goes pretty well because there's just less choice in the Uber kind of micro-market. Um, I'm not sure there's necessarily less choice in New Jersey because as much as, you know, there are uh, less breweries per capita in the state than pretty much anywhere else, there is a lot of beer coming into the state. You know, we're right outside New York and Pennsylvania, two of the biggest craft beer yeah. states. So you are seeing a lot, you know, coming into the state. And we are, you know, on shelves alongside a lot of the big heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. I was trying to speak more to, like, I know that's that's always an uphill struggle no matter what kind of brewery you have. I was talking about more in the kind of the beer market of New Jersey itself through all the different upstart breweries. And I was in gonna ask what's it like growing alongside of a lot of different breweries it almost seems like there's a like in a lot of other states you don't have 20 new breweries all growing up at the same time i mean the class of breweries that opened between 2014 and 2017 in new jersey is insane there's like 50 60 breweries i think that have opened in that amount of time logistically how do you deal with that as a brewer i mean it's not really an issue we ever have to deal with like in any way like the nice thing is, so we were on, we probably, I don't want to say early, but like midway through that wave, I think we were the 80th brewery to open in the mm-hmm. state. Uh, I had a lot of people I could ask questions while I was growing. You know, I used to shoot an email out almost every single week to Mike Kane. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I knew he had run into these same issues, whether it be on keg deposits or something on, you know, a piece of equipment that, you know, was vital around here breaking. You know, hey, I have one of them. You have a dozen. Yeah. And I just, you know, borrow it for a day while my new one is on order. Of course, you know, and that's sort of a thing that I've tried to make sure I do. Uh, you know, I work with a lot of other local breweries all the time. Um, just did a collab with Last Wave. I was hanging out over at Heavy Reel and Seaside last night, uh, constantly trying to help out in any way physically possible. Uh, just making myself available because, as much as there's a lot of breweries opening in the state, there's all also still a lot of room for growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at you know one county in California, in Escondido County, has more breweries than. Our entire state does. Yeah. You know, going on to Asheville, North Carolina, similar story. Yep. So, as crazy it seems that, you know, we went from, when I worked at Renewed, I think they were the seventh or eighth brewery to open the state, to I was the 80th brewery to open, you know, maybe four years later. Now we're over 100, another two years later. That seems like a crazy growth, and percentage-wise it is. But, you know, in all reality, it's not that insane. I think it's more of a... The market realizing that, you know, there's a balance to hit. Well, I mean, and, and the flip to that, which I was going to get to, but you talked about it perfectly, which is the camaraderie between all the breweries coming up. You know what I mean? Like, the you know, if you need help or somebody needs help, you know, you guys are all through it together. So I'm sure just kind of everybody kind of visits each other. And like you said, when it came to you having to deliver stuff, if people are traveling through and they need to bring your stuff from place to place, you got someone watching your back, which is pretty cool. You I know mean, what I mean? You don't see that in a lot of industries. 
Definitely not. I mean, it's something I try to make sure, like, because a lot of people are coming into the beer world right now who might not have worked at production breweries before, and they don't understand the culture in all ways of a production brewery. Like, having grown up as a assistant brewer, then brewer, when you show up to work and uh, you realize, crap, like, I'm 110 pounds light on Turo. I know this brewery 10 miles up the road is a lot bigger than me. They always have spare. When I don't have to tell my boss that I had to cancel today's brew day, and said I had to tell him, like, yeah, no, I started half an hour late. He accepted the half an hour late a lot more than, <laughs> hey, I uh, misordered grain, and uh, sorry, we're just not going to have that batch ready. Yeah. So it was a lot of us each covering each other, or, hey, I want to go pitch the yeast, and it's just stagnant, or I don't have the yeast on hand, or I just looked at it, did a cell count. I didn't like the viability on it. When you can just work with each other and each, again, cover each other's ass, it's nice. It brings everybody together and brings everybody up. So that's just a, a culture that I've always loved in this industry. Yeah. The fact that we can always work with each other. Uh, the sheer amount that I learned from other breweries still. Every time I do a collab and I always try, like, if I'm doing a collaboration brew, not do something that I'm ultra familiar with, not do something that, you know, maybe, maybe they are and I'm not. So I learn something off of them and I bring some of my knowledge to it as well. Hey, like, you work with this one yeast all the time and I've never used it. I'm a little bit scared of it. Like when we worked with a Dark City, we did a kettle sour. Uh, it was a pretty much a kettle soured version of Yachu's. When I do Northeast IPAs all day, they do kettle sours all day. I had never in my life done a kettle sour before. Went there and I, I was just dumbfounded learning constantly while at the same time teaching them a little bit about what I do. Yeah. So I feel like we each became better out of it, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's awesome. The um, What's the... Uh is that the coolest thing you've learned in a collab so far? Is this how to work on that end of things? Or is there a particular thing you picked up and you're like, oh, God damn it. I should have known that, but I, it just never dawned on you. What are the tidbits you've learned along the way from uh, working with other brewers and collabs and stuff like that that are, you either you know, kind of straighten yourself out or learn something cool that you, you never thought, oh, that's how that works? I mean, I feel like there's always something. Yeah. Uh, no, I did a collaboration with Bolero. Uh, first time I you know, worked with fresh fruit, really, in a non-saison, non-funky beer. So not more of a, hey, we want this to be a clean beer at the end environment. And I've used it plenty since. So like that, that was a fun thing to learn. As well as plenty of times, like there's many different ways to uh, reach the same goal. Mm -hmm. So I might learn, you know, other people's procedures on things. Might not necessarily be any better than my procedure, but it's different. Yeah. Same reason why like I'm still a complete nerd of every time I go to any brewery, I take a tour. Yeah. Like, I, I go through the place, I look at the equipment, I see, wait, you have a, a meter here? Oh, you have this gauge there? Oh, you have, like, that's genius. Like, why didn't I think of that? Or, huh. Maybe on my next system, like, I like that idea, I like my idea. Let's find a good way to mesh both. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your system. What are you guys working at capacity-wise here? So, we're in a 10-barrel brew house. Uh, I've a, I have an oversized mash ton, so really about a 15-barrel mash ton. That allows me to do bigger beers, like, uh, you know, Russian Puro Stouts, Double IPAs without having to scale the batch size down. Uh, oversized hot liquor tank as well, which allows me to then do double and triple batches, you know, every week. Uh, for On the cold side right now, I have two 10-barrel fermenters, two 20-barrel fermenters, two 30-barrel fermenters, as well as a 30-barrel bright and 20-barrel bright. Okay. So every single week I'm brewing, on average, six batches. Oh, geez. Yeah. And in a few weeks, I'll have a 40-barrel fermenter on the way, which means on average I'll be brewing eight batches a week. <laughs> Which pretty much just means lots of triple brews, some doubles, and a few singles here and there. How often do you brew? 
right now it's three days a week. Every Sunday, like this morning, at starting at 4:45 a.m., uh, we're brewing a single batch. Every Monday is a triple brew. Every Tuesday we can. Every Wednesday is a double brew. Where this new tank will come into play, we haven't figured out yet. It's sort of a We'll figure it out when it gets here. A little, little uh, Tetris jigsaw action, try to try to work it in somewhere. Oh, like the location-wise, that's going to be a complete. Uh, we'll uh. stand it up, and it looks good there. <laughs> yeah, that uh, I was when I ordered it. It has a about a four-month lead time on each of these new fermenters. Oh, in four months, I'll figure out a good location for it. Well, uh, three and a half months down, and uh, <laughs> not even close to. Yeah, well, I have two weeks to figure this out. And then, um, but you also do lagering. Not a lot of people do lagering. Yeah, um, I personally love lagers. I mean. One of my favorite beers that we brew is a Doppelbach. Yeah. Uh, a true classic German Doppelbach. Love it. Dark, malty, a little bit sweet. Like, has that just beautiful, rich chocolate flavor to it. One of my favorite styles, man. Celebrator, fuck the world. Yeah. yeah. Love that beer. Yeah. And then, um, and then, I mean, where does the the distilling, when you work worked at the distillery up there in Red Hook, and then how many beers? Because you have a decent amount of barrels floating around here. Was that, like, a super big... Like advantage that you worked at the distillery for so long to kind of jump into a barrel program? Definitely. I mean, it, it allows you to look at a barrel and see, you know, what the quality aspects on it. Like, I know what the better cooperages are, and I try to work with distillers that use those cooperages, uh, knowing what a fresh barrel is, how to rehydrate a barrel, how to really work with it. Um, definitely an advantage because otherwise you're going to have, you're just going to keep filling leaky barrels that are old and you know, none of the flavor that you're aiming for. So that definitely helps. And, and also just knowing the flavors from distillation, from the barrel aging, that you should be reaching what those aromatics should be. Mm-hmm. How much, how much, if at all, do you just beers that go into barrels? Uh, I tend to make sure they're a lot fuller. So mm-hmm. anytime I have a uh, barrel aged version of something, it ends up being just try to end uh, maybe five to ten gravity points higher, okay. knowing that through the six to twelve months it sits in a barrel, it's going to you know, dry out ever so slightly. So that way it just ends up around that same point. Okay. And uh, let's talk about you, man. How'd you get into beer? So started with the internship at a brewery. Uh, had to take an internship every single semester in college. Uh, ended up, you know, having that one job at Elevator Brewing. And as many other jobs as I had after that, it's what I always found my way jumping back into. Was there in, like, uh, before that you weren't really into beer? I mean, you're just off the school, so you're probably, what, 18, 19 years old, something like that? At that point, I think it was, like, 19, yeah. Yeah, and uh, was there a specific, like, elevator brewing beer that turned you on? You, like, drank it and had this great epiphany, or was it more just the whole process and the romantic side of things that really drew you into it? I think it was a process. Uh, Something about, like, so going to college, I always wanted to go to culinary school. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love cooking, love the creative side of it. At the same time, you know, I always had a side love for chemistry. Like, always thought about working in a lab, uh, and the two sort of just became hand in hand. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're working in a brewery, you're a chef, you're a chemist, and you're a janitor. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm used to working with my hands my whole life, uh, so the combination just worked perfectly. Allows you to express yourself creatively, uh, creatively, uh, always create something new. Well, at the same time, you have to throw a lot of thought into it. You can't just throw ingredients into a mash trying to be like, oh, okay, I made a beer. Oh, wait, you just that's, that's not how it works? I thought you just threw whatever you wanted in there and magic comes out. That I was... mean, don't tell anyone my secrets. Oh, geez. <laughs> so you go there, like, and you kind of fell in love with the process. Was there a point where you, like, dialed in? Like, do you have a specific kind of beer that you dig, like, outside of your own? Or is it, or is it just you just 
love you can find something beautiful in almost every every beer. Is there like specific beers you geek out over outside of what you produce? So that's tough. It, for me, it, it changes every single day. It changes by season, which mm-hmm. is why I love having you know twenty different beers on tap. The fact that depending on the situation, I can go for that clean pilsner. I can go for that big juicy double IPA. I can go for that you know double imperial stout. Um, I tend to find myself drinking a lot of saisons. Like I love like the lighter side of things, the funkiness of a saison. Uh, really pulling the most out of yeast character, which then obviously leads me into using all different funky yeast for IPAs. Uh, and one of my favorite barrel-aged imperial stouts I've brewed here, I use French saison yeast for something you would never see in a stout. Yeah. But it worked out so beautifully. Because it probably dried it out nice, yeah. right? And but at the same time, there was just so many unfermentable sugars in there that yeah. there's only so far it could dry. Yeah. So you got some, almost like a, a funkiness, but you still had the dark chocolate, and you still had, then you had the bourbon on it, and it just all worked in just that perfect harmony and a match that like shouldn't have worked in any way, but when it all came together, it was just perfect. So for me, it's things that are very different. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, cookie cutter, doing the same beer over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just honestly no fun for me, which is why uh, we do release so many different beers constantly. And yeah, we'll, we'll come back to ones that we love. At the same time, it's fun for me when we do something new, use a weird ingredient. Uh, we just did a, we've done a lot of double, IP, double IPAs lately, a lot of lactose double IPAs. Uh, through lemongrass and coconut in one, lemongrass on the hot side and on the cold side, coconut on the cold side, and it just came out phenomenal. It tastes like the best uh, Thai soup I've ever had in my life. <laughs> uh, and it just, it, it sounds weird, but it was just delicious. And like that's always the fun in it for me, just weird. And, and talk about the ingredients uh, more specifically. Like you guys, um, you were talking about this before we started recording. You're talking about um, you finished a brute IPA today, and you guys work a lot with the Brooks. Mm. Like, like, where like the, is that? Just the, you loving the dry side of things? Is that kind of where those two come from, or is it just more a matter of just uh, you just like the way those those kind of fla- uh, things? More specifically, I would say Brooks than brute because brute is just going to dry everything yeah. out. Whereas Bruxton's going to add a develop a flavor and stuff like that. When were you first introduced to that? Or was it something that you've always kind of worked with, whether it be in fermentation or over in England and stuff like that? When were you introduced to that? And then, like, how did you end up working with it eventually? I just like the variations it provides. You know, when you have a little bit drier, a little bit more crisp IPA, you can get a lot more flavors off the hops. Uh, the malt doesn't really cover everything up. But at the same time, like, we go in both directions. Like, I have plenty of double IPAs that end, you know, 1025 plus you know gravity yeah. points so like i'll mash them in at 158 throw some lactose in there and really just sweeten it up cream it up but at the same time again there's occasions where you really want that there's occasions you know when it's 85 degrees out or you just finish you know working outside all day you want that drier crisper beer yeah and and talking about want your customer base here, like, like how Jersey as a whole, the Jersey beer drinker, they're quite the uh, opinionated group of people. Um, what's it like uh, being a brewer that makes so many different styles of beer? And then, you know, a good portion of them are looking for just basically the, where can I find yacht juice? You know what I mean? Like, how do you deal with that balance between making what you want to make, making something that is outside of that realm, but also people just banging on your door for the hazies? I've learned that you'll never make everyone happy, mm. and you have to yeah. accept that. You know, there, no, there's no matter what, always going to be people that 
know your business better than you do. Uh, I'd make a lot of people happy if I had yacht juice available all the time, all year <laughs> round. But at the same time, there'd be plenty of people that would be pissed off because I don't have other things going on. Uh, perfect example, uh, we entered into a Great American Beer Fest this year. Uh, one of the beers we entered was our uh, Kalishna coffee. A huge Russian Imperial Stout, uh, conditioned on coffee. The category was coffee stout, well, coffee beer, subcategory stout. One judge, and again, these are all high-level judges. I know where you're going here. Yeah. Go ahead. One judge commented that it was too much coffee, overwhelming amounts of coffee. Another judge commented, not enough coffee, needs more. <laughs> right then and there, I learned nothing could have ever won me that. Yeah. You know, there is no direction I could have went on in to increase yet lower the amount of coffee <laughs> in that beer. So... It's the same with every single beer we brew, with every single consumer. Plenty of people want them to be more bitter, less bitter, sweeter, less sweet. More, more, more of a certain hop, less of a certain hop. But as long as you're making some people happy, what does it really matter? There's enough breweries out there, enough beers out there that there'll be something for everyone. Was uh, is there a specific beer that you made that you're like, this is gonna be the best? People are gonna go ape shit for this beer and crickets. Uh, so, I'm trying to think like what would be the most like that, or something that you just love that you're like, this is great. Ah, oh, this beer is great. I have people have to love this. It's so good, and then people like me. So like right now, like if I try to do anything as more of a American ale, West Coast, you mm-hmm. know, IPA, like even pump the the bitterness up, you know, fifty, sixty IBUs, I absolutely love it. Like. You know, I still drink a lot more Northeast than I do of West Coast. Uh, but at the same time, I still enjoy a West Coast IPA. I love that bitterness, love the pine, love the resin. And every time I try and do it, you know, see if, you know, well, it'll just be one option out of 20 on the menu. Well, people drink it. This is too bitter. I, I don't like this. I don't like this. You know, it's too bitter. It's a 50 IBU IPA. Go back three, four years and he would be. That's way too much. Yeah. yeah, this isn't bitter at all. Like this, right, is, a, this yeah. is a pale ale at best. So there, there's no way to make everyone happy, and I've learned to accept that. Uh, it's really more about, you know, having some people love it than to have everyone like it. The um, Now, with doing those, with doing the West Coast IPAs here and doing the Pilsners and doing and beers like that, do you see people coming in and initially not liking them but slowly over time kind of gravitating towards them? Because it seems like since there's a lot of people that got into beer over the years – that there is a lot of I just want hops with almost no bitterness and I want sweetness to where people are eventually gravitating towards something beyond that a doppel box in a world the you know what I mean those are sweet beers but they're markedly different you see you kind of walking people back from the IPA as a producer of beers outside of that style oh definitely I mean when we had our Oktoberfest on tap like it was a I'll definitely say it was a very good Oktoberfest uh, but at the same time, the best Oktoberfest in the world really tastes like every other Oktoberfest. Yeah. Like, there's not that huge of a difference. You know, it's a very specific style, and you're not looking for an abundance of any one flavor. It outsold every single IPA we had on tap. Outsold Yachus as a simple, malty, lagered Oktoberfest. And, you know, it's one of those things of there's no statistics that'll show that that's any of the trends right now. But at the same time, I, I really feel like at the core of it, people still drink and enjoy traditional styles. 
You know, whether they're going out of their way to buy a four-pack of it, probably not. But whether they're going out and drinking with friends and having it, definitely. Yeah, it almost seems like a mindset shift that, that, that'll happen. Because it seems like if you're going to buy a, you know, imperialized, double dry hop version of Yacht Juice, a lot of people who end up buying those is, uh, I'll buy a four-pack, I'll keep one or two for me, and then trade off one or two to other people and get two things I didn't have. Whereas your Oktoberfest is like, these, this is a six-pack I'm going to bring and drink with a bunch of friends mm-hmm. all night long. So it's that shift from, let's tick this to let's sit down and actually drink for about five hours and just have a good time. It seems like some people are starting to kind of flip the script and, and go with something a bit more chuggable, a bit more drinkable, a bit more, what's the word? Quaffable? Session- Probably sessionable, too. Sessionable. Um, that, I think that's a good thing. Because especially with you having a tap room, albeit the Jersey version of a tap room, yeah. um, you probably, you know, have people come in and have one or two beers and leave. Now you might be seeing having people come in and have you know, six, seven beers and just mm-hmm. hear a lot of conversation going back and forth. And the nice thing about having, you know, some more traditional styles and some varied styles on tap as well, uh, same as any bar will tell you, you're going to have people coming in with a group. When you have people coming in with a group, yeah, you're going to have, you know, the haze lovers mm-hmm. and they'll order nothing but double IPAs, IPAs, triple IPAs all day long. But, you know, they'll come in with their friends that really just still aren't into Northeast, aren't into, you know, sours, aren't into stouts. And that's what they're going to keep drinking. They're, they're going to have, you know, some of the more traditional styles. So it, it opens up craft to a lot more people because, you know, you're having, you know, a dry hop Pilsner and not just, you know, Miller Lite. You're having, you know, a craft Doppelbach. You're having, you know, real all malt flavors, something extremely fresh and local rather than just, you know, something that might have sat on a shelf for the last year or two. Yeah. So... You're, you're bringing a lot of the quality and localness into these traditional styles. What's next for you guys? Do you have anything big in the works? I mean, you have the, the new, you know, new tank coming in. Like, mm-hmm. is there anything beyond that? Are you looking to kind of expand even further in some form or fashion or just keep just banging out good beers? Well, banging out good beers is always, you know, our plan, our goal. But uh, we're, we're sort of starting our March right now toward our anniversary, which is second week of January, January 12th. So we have a lot of, you know, we're bringing back a lot of beers that we loved, you know, maybe doing new versions of them, double dry hopping them, triple dry hopping, whatever other terms you want to throw out there. Uh, as well as, you know, bringing a lot cooler beers in my, in my view, maybe beers that might not be as, you know, marketable to bars. You know, I have a, a triple IPA going right now, uh, seven pounds per barrel dry hop, like overwhelming amounts of flavor. Like, Something very different. Um, so fun things like that, as well as we've slowly started, uh, you know, kegging up, bottling up some more of our barrel-aged beers, uh, bringing, getting some of those ready for anniversary. So having, you know, a nice lineup on the way to there. Nice. And if people want to visit here, how do they find you guys? So Aries is extremely easy to get to as long as you live anywhere that's uh, accessible to, you know, Garden State Parkway or right up to Exit 89. Um, and from there, it's really just five or six more blocks. And you're uh, like, if you if someone was going to reach out to you guys, what's your modus operandi when it comes to the internet? Are you Facebook, email, uh, Instagram? Like, much, what's your favorite? We're, we're extremely 21st century, so pretty much mm-hmm. any form of social media or email. Uh, we typically respond at all times. You know, all of us manage the social media, so okay. pretty much at almost all times of the day, you'll find someone on Instagram, Facebook, you know, updating everyone on what we're doing. 
So anyone who wants to reach out, you know, we're there. And I assume, like, you know, if you're going to do releases or, like, kind of, like, drop off beer here and there, just follow social media and people know where to find your beers out and about outside of actual Lakewood? Yeah. I mean, we, we uh, throw every single can drop on Facebook and Instagram for the most part. Uh, let everyone know when we're dropping, where we're dropping. That way, you know, when they want to storm the store and buy whatever they have of it, they know. Uh, which is pretty nice because otherwise it does disappear from stores pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So having people know when to go, they really appreciate. You know, I, I look at everything as I'm still a beer fanboy. Uh, I still go a little bit crazy when I see you know Kane's releasing something new. I'm, I'm you know refreshing Eventbrite all day. <laughs> uh, so I understand as a consumer what I would like. So I try to treat everything you know not as like a business owner, but what would I appreciate if places do? So I try to be very open with everybody. Okay. And th- Cap it off. You talked about being a beer fan, but what was the la- what's the beer that turns you on? Do you have a, a beer? Is there one beer that you're like, oh, man, just this blows my titties off? So there's probably two beers for this. <laughs> uh, one I'm a little bit more proud of, one I'm not at this point. Well, I guess I'm proud of both. Uh, so grew up uh, not that far from uh, Blue Point. Okay. So toasted lager is definitely, you know, what got me into craft beer. It was pre-Embev days. Like this was still independent Blue yeah. Point. I uh, still loved hanging out in their tasting room. Yeah, I remember I found an old pre uh, pre Embev bottle. Of, what was their what was their was it a wheat wine or a barley wine? I think it was a wheat angry something. Uh, that was delicious. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, it was, it was always that, and I'd every single weekend probably go out to releases uh, like the original, you know, beer lines at uh, Captain Lawrence. Oh yeah, used to go out there. Uh, you know, still in love with Fresh Chester Pale Ale. Yeah, um, I was just out there about a month and a half ago. Liquid Gold is still like a top 10 beer of all time for me. Like, that was always, you know, my trek every single weekend. People would never understand, like, why are you driving all the way up to Westchester? <laughs> like, even for me back in Queens, it was a good, like, hour plus each way. Yeah, yeah. And it was almost every single weekend. It was like, you don't understand. Like, well, number one, like, that was probably the second closest brewery at that point because New York had nothing. Nothing. <laughs> uh, but it was just so different than everything else. And it's what you know, people obviously are realizing these days when they go to all their local taste rooms, local breweries, that there's something beautiful about fresh local beer. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, brother. I appreciate you sitting down, man. No problem. That's pretty awesome. So, yeah, if you want to check out Icarus Brewing, go online. Icarus Brewing, Gmail, Instagram, and tapped. ICRQ, whatever the hell it is, uh, MySpace, probably every place you could possibly imagine. Um, if you have any questions uh, for Jason, you can address them directly or shoot us an email at massivebeers.gmail.com and we'll forward them along to him. Um, and yeah, let us know what you guys think. If you appreciate the, uh, the interview, um, let us know. Uh, leave those five stars and all that hot garbage that iTunes wants you to do. And yeah, talk to you next time. Cheers. Cheers.